Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Botswana awaits presidential election results. And South African opposition party leader Musimai Mani resigns. In economics news, Zimbabwe Revenue Authority cracks the whip on staff. And in sports news, a South African football association desperate to send a strong under-23 team to Egypt. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. The president of the Umbrella for Democratic Change in Botswana, Duma Boko, is optimistic that his party has performed well in Wednesday's elections. The UDC is the main opposition and one of the four political parties contesting in this year's elections during the last general elections in 2014. The UDC obtained 20 seats out of 57, which were up for grabs the highest by an opposition since the country gained independence from Britain in 19. 66. Poco explains. I'm extremely elated today that I've lived to this moment. It's a very epic moment. It's a very humbling moment looking at the prospects, looking at what this moment portends. That the very next day it may be totally different. We may be looking at a spectacularly different future from what we've had so far. The first black lady of South Africa's largest opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, has resigned from his post amid a row over race. Musi Maimani says he had experienced problems in making the traditionally white liberal party appeal to black voters. Maimani's resignation came three days after the DA's Herman Mashaba resigned from the party and as mayor of Johannesburg. The party's federal chairperson, Ethel Trollope, have also resigned. This followed the appointment of the party's former leader, Helen Ziller, as its federal chairperson, the second most powerful position in the DA. Ziller, meanwhile, says they will hold an urgent meeting to discuss plans to seek legal advice on the way forward for the party. She spoke to the media at the DA headquarters in Johannesburg after the two resignations. This is a rather unusual situation because both the leader and the chairperson have taken individual decisions at the same time. So before we rush into something that may not be constitutional and may not be appropriate, we will and we are taking legal advice as to what the right path forward is constitutionally. We will convene a federal executive by teleconference to discuss that legal advice. 
Three protesters have been killed and several others wounded after demonstrations against Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed turned violent. Two protesters were killed in Adama town and one near the ancient city of Harar in the east. Another three protesters had gunshot wounds and were taken to hospital in Ambo town west of the capital Addis Ababa. Roads remain closed in cities across Ramia, including those linking the region to Addis Ababa. Protesters have been showing support for prominent opposition activist Jawa. Muhammad after he raised concerns about his safety. Democratic Party lawmakers in the United States have accused their Republican rivals of compromising national security after more than 20 of them stormed the impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump, chaired by Adam Schiff. The Republicans have accused the impeachment committees, which are drawn from both parties, of trying to remove Trump from office improperly. The Democrats accused them of helping Russia and China by tweeting from a secure committee room. One of the protests Republicans who interrupted the proceedings had this to say. Whatever Adam Schiff is putting together today is a tainted document because it's a one-sided document. It's a document that's been created in secret, behind closed doors, and when we showed up today to find out exactly what's going on, he got out of the room and left with the witness. It was disgraceful. This has been a disgraceful process. This is a Soviet-style process. This should not be allowed in the United States of America. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. Hello. To celebrate African women's achievements, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, listen to Humanity, Women in Unity, an advocacy radio program against all forms of gender-based discrimination and violence against women. Humanity, Women in Unity, on Channel Africa every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Humanity, Women in Unity, with Dr. Amalea Gonez-Malka, every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday morning at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Channel Africa, celebrating African women's achievements, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. Botswana voted on Wednesday in a cliffhanger election set to test the decades-long dominance of the ruling party and challenge the country's image of stability. More than 900,000 of the country's 2.2 million people were registered to vote in the elections, which at parliamentary and local level. Results are expected as early as Thursday evening. Sintle Inglihihi has more. A day of reckoning, a scores of Botswana flocked to cast their votes in an election that would determine who'd lead the country's 12th administration. This is what Botswana had to say at the voting stations in Khaborone. I think it's so important for me to vote because I want to make Botswana 
to be a better country. It's very important to come and vote because I'm going to choose the, uh, the, the, the government that can uh, lead me to, to excess sex life. Botswana President Bukhweti Masisi voted at his home village, Moshopa, about 60 kilometers from the capital, Khaboroni. He says his country prides itself on being a peaceful place and that he did not anticipate any glitches during the elections. The institutions are tested, the resolve and the capacity of the voters is tested. And you know what? I can only thank God for having been the protagonist in this test. Sure, it's the toughest election we've had to fight, but you know, I enjoy a test. I enjoy a challenge. I love campaigning. President of the Umbrella for Democratic Change, Dumaboko, cast his vote at Massa Primary School in Khaburone. During the last general elections in 2014, the UDC obtained 20 seats out of 57 which were up for grabs, the highest by any opposition since the country gained independence from Britain in 1966. This time, Boko is confident the party will do even better. I'm extremely elated today that I've lived to this moment. It's a very epic moment. It's a very humbling moment looking at the prospects, looking at what this moment portends, that the very next day it may be totally different. We may be looking at a spectacularly different future from what we've had so far. Alliance for Progressives president, who is also a candidate for the Botswana presidency, Ndaba Gaulate, cast his vote at his constituency in Block 9 in Khaburone. Well, I, I feel very refreshed. Uh, it has been a very intense campaign stamp. So this is actually the first time in a couple of years that I feel so refreshed. Results are expected to be announced Thursday morning. I'm Sintlengdi Hihi in Khaburone, Botswana. South Africa's main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, is now in a mission searching for the next party leader and national chairperson. Yesterday, Musi Maimani quit his position with federal chairperson Athol Trollope, also throwing in the towel. Helen Ziller, the newly elected chairperson of the Federal Council, told the media at the same press conference where the big announcements were made that they are now seeking legal advice on how to deal with the matter. Abongile Dumago reports. Dressed in a black suit, the now former DA leader Musi Maimane walked into the press room packed with both local and international media alongside the now former DA chairperson Athol Trollip and Helen Zile. He expressed his gratitude for the opportunity the Democratic Alliance has awarded him to be at the helm of the party's leadership position. Four years later, things turned south, leaving many questions from citizens across the country. Musmaimane announced his resignation during a media briefing that had to be postponed three times yesterday. He said that despite his efforts, he had realized that there was a grouping within the party that did not share his vision to build an inclusive South Africa. He says he will continue as party's parliamentary leader until the end of the year, after which the DA will go to Congress to elect new leadership. Maimane explains. And therefore it is with great sadness that in order to continue this fight for the vision I strongly believe and the country I so dearly love, I will today step down as leader of the DA. I'll continue my role as parliamentary leader if the party makes that decision until the end of the year. After which I strongly believe the party must in fact go to Congress in order to elect new leadership. And Athol Trollip followed suit 
saying the time to go has arrived. The Democratic Alliance is not a party in denial. The Democratic Alliance realizes that we have made mistakes. We have taken things for granted. We have taken voters for granted. And I know that we will learn from those lessons. And I wish my colleagues that have the responsibility to take this party forward and to protect the interests of all South Africans to make sure that we have an effective opposition. We were the best opposition prior to 1994. After 1994, we were undoubtedly the best opposition in this country. The newly elected Democratic Alliance's Federal Council Chairperson Helen Zille says that they will meet today to discuss seeking legal advice on the way forward for the party. Zille says this is an unfortunate turn of events in the history of the DA, hence the uncertainty on the way forward. This is a rather unusual situation because both the leader and the chairperson have taken individual decisions at the same time. So before we rush into something that may not be constitutional and may not be appropriate, we were, we will and we are taking legal advice as to what the right path forward is constitutionally. And tomorrow we will convene a federal executive by teleconference to discuss that legal advice. Maimane and Trollip's departure follows that of Herman Mashaba raising the question of whether the DA's vision for all is shared by all. I am Abongile Dumago in Johannesburg. A number of South African leaders of parties say they are not surprised at the dramatic developments within the Democratic Alliance. Wednesday witnessed the resignations of party leader Musi Maimani and Federal Executive Chairperson Athol Trollope. Earlier this week, Herman Mashaba announced his resignation as Johannesburg mayor and his official exit from the party. While some party leaders believe this will weaken the role of the country's opposition, others see it as an opportunity to grow their electoral support. Busichimombe reports. Former DA leader Patricia DeLille was one of the first opposition leaders to react. She says she warned former DA leader Musi Maimani that if he did not stand on principle, the DA would swallow him up and spit him out. Dalil, who now leads the Good Party, says that the problem with my money and what she calls his handlers is that they do not have a clue about principled leadership. Dalil left the party exactly a year ago this month after a protracted legal battle with the DA. If Musi was trying to work to reflect the demographics of South Africa and he wasn't allowed to do so, it's certainly going to be a big challenge for them to continue to pretend to be caring about all the people of South Africa, but then excluding the majority of, of, of people in, in our country and especially the poor. Well, I, like I said to me, uh, they, the year is well on its way to destruction, destroying themselves. And, you know, when people are busy with that, you must simply leave them alone to continue. Freedom Front leader Peter Grunewald says he was not surprised by the resignations of the DA leaders, saying that the tensions in the country's largest opposition party concerning its vision were apparent. He says his party will likely continue to benefit from the DA's woes, as it did at the May 8 general elections. The Freedom Front Plus will benefit because the electorate doesn't like political parties who are unstable. They want stability in a party. I mean, if there's not stability and there's differences on the vision and the future of a political party, why will a 
voter vote for such a political party. So that will benefit the Freedom Front Plus. And the other aspect is that we are focused on our policies. We have a solid vision for the future and we're not going to be deterred from that as far as what is happening in the Democratic Alliance. Meanwhile, the United Democratic Movement says that the resignation of the three leaders from the DA are a tip of the iceberg, with the DA finally showing its true colors. Its leader, Bantu Holomisa, says a weakened DA will erode the power of the country's opposition. The truth of the matter is that uh, the absence of people like Mashala, Maimane, will definitely uh, play a role in weakening uh, the role of the opposition. Uh, those two uh, gentlemen have proved uh, to, to the population of South Africa that uh, they are standing for the people of this country. The ANC has, however, remained unmoved by the latest developments. Its Deputy General Secretary, Jesse Duarte. Musi Maimani, once again, if he makes the choice, to resign, surely that's his choice and it has nothing to do with the ANC and once again we would wish him well. Uh, we, we're okay with that, he's not a member of the ANC and it isn't a significant, important matter to us. A way forward regarding replacements for the former DA leaders will be discussed on Thursday at a meeting of its Federal Executive Council. When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Aburengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9 and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa, rise. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Russia's President Vladimir Putin has opened the inaugural Russia-Africa summit in the resort city of Sochi as his country looks to double trade with the continent in five years. For more on the significance of the summit, Channel Africa's Kumbela Munjalele spoke to Professor Irina Filatova from Russia's National Research University. It is very significant indeed because it will give a political incentive to development of relations between different African countries and Russia, both in the political and economic sense. Now, would you say trade commercial ties have been an important driver of this relationship, or is it a shared common attitude to the West, which is that the global structure as it is today needs to be changed? Well, I think that what you said, uh, the second part of what you said is correct. Yes, there is a common interest between the vision of the Russian government and the vision of many African countries uh, that uh, uh, the global order, uh, economic and political global order needs to be changed. Uh, There is definitely a common vision about that. About the commercial relations, uh, uh, that part of the relations between Russia and Africa, uh, it has been very weak and uh, Russian trade with uh, African countries is uh, very small. 
compared both to the Chinese uh, trade and to the European Union trade. Uh, so uh, if Russia wants to develop that, well, uh, uh, this is a good time to begin. But others are saying that the aim of this forum, Prof, is for Russia to compete with China. Uh, what is your view with regards to that? Uh, well, uh, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin get, gave an interview to uh, a Russian news agency, uh, a very extended interview, in which he said about the civilized competition with the West. He did not speak particularly about the competition with China, uh, but I'm sure that if Russia wants to expand its uh, uh, export to the African countries, it will come ultimately to the competition with uh, uh, the Chinese as well. There are also challenges uh, and threats uh, to this relationship, isn't it, Prof? The arms trade in particular has been a source of controversy in relations between Russia and Africa. The CAR, the Central African Republic, is a case in point. Concerns have been raised about the military and security role Russia has played there since 2018, especially the implications of using of private military companies to deal with security problems in the country. How should this kind of threats be properly managed without jeopardizing the relations between the two regions? Uh, look, there are uh, there is legitimate arms trade. Uh, first of all, there is legitimate arms trade, and uh, it is a well-known fact that Russia supplies more arms to African countries than any other country. It's uh, Russian supplies, uh, military supplies to Africa are the biggest. Uh, that is one uh, point, and I'm absolutely that they will increase uh, and uh, the Russian position about to the Russian attitude to this question is that Africa needs to defend itself and that Russian arms will help it to do it. Whether this is a correct position or not is not for me to judge but for the African country. As far as the uh, uh, some sort of underground security companies, I cannot uh, tell you anything about it because I read about it in the media just like you do. Probably there, there is uh, something going on there. Uh, the Russian government denies it. Uh, there probably are such things, but if it is true, uh, probably it is true, uh, then uh, the African governments have to look into that because that part of uh, the military cooperation or penetration is very dangerous because it is uncontrollable and it is it would mean that uh, these forces could be used for any ulterior purposes. What in your view will be the key aspects that will be on the final the declaration when the summit uh, closes? Uh, well, I'm sure that uh, the key aspects will be the preservation of peace, uh, sovereignty uh, on the African continent, and uh, that there will be a mutual declaration about that. I'm absolutely sure that <clears throat> there will be something about mutually beneficial trade and uh, probably political goals or probably about the political goals uh, um, of um, restructuring the world uh, economic and political order. That's Professor Irina Filatova.
From Russia's National Research University on the line from the capital, Moscow, speaking to Kumbeda Munjelele. The growing number of relatively wealthy consumers in sub-Saharan Africa will become a key source of demand for South African manufactured goods. Experts say South Africa must leverage on this under the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement, in which 54 African countries have already signed. The free trade agreement seeks to promote intra-African trade, where commerce in goods and services can move freely across borders without tariff. Trade experts attending an economic policy dialogue in Pretoria say South African businesses will largely benefit under the agreement as new export markets for South African goods will be created. Amina Akram reports. Government says it plans to host roadshows and various workshops in the coming months to educate businesses and various stakeholders on the benefits of Africa Free Trade Area Agreement. The Africa Free Trade Area Agreement is expected to create a platform for South African manufacturers and businesses who want to expand outside their usual export markets. Xavier Karim is the DDG for International Trade and Economic Development at the Department of Trade and Industry, the DTI. This meeting, um, this dialogue is an attempt to begin to make sure that the, the information around the AFCFTA is um, more widely known in South Africa and that we begin to prepare effectively. We've had already two years of negotiations, um, internal negotiations and consultations uh, with our um, with business and labor in the context of the NEDLAC um, uh, framework. Um, but how, however, the point remains that this has to be more broadly disseminated. Information has to be shared more widely. This is a first uh, attempt uh, today uh, with the economic dialogue uh, process, but there will be other, many, many other um, opportunities and efforts to extend the information more widely. So far, 54 African countries have signed their agreement, but not without a few challenges. South Africa is one of only six African countries that have competition and companies' laws and regulations. The rest of the continent still lags behind, and this causes significant problems for businesses that want to expand. Other challenges facing the agreement are rules of origin, which sets out what qualifies as loyalty manufactured products. The online negotiating forum and a digital payment system also need to be finalized. Trudy Makaya is the economic advisor to the president. I think some of the pillars to make it successful are also interesting. So, you know, the presenters talked about infrastructure, continental infrastructure corridors as being very important. Um, they also talked about things like competition policy to make sure that the continent as a whole has a level playing field. But I think even for a country like South Africa to make sure that when companies from the rest of the continent come to South Africa, they face a level playing field. They don't feel like they're barriers to entry or they're being excluded. Karim says there are other issues to be ironed out, and this includes rules and regulations which are to be enforced and implemented across the continent. If we feel that one or another member has not implemented what they said that they were going to, to do, what they've committed to do, um, there is a due process, uh, a legal process, which will allow those that have a complaint to bring the complaint to, the, uh, to effectively a court system. Um, the other party would have a chance to respond and we would have a, uh, an arbitration um, um, to review it and the arbitration would presumably 
come up with a proposal. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa 1. On Twitter, at Channel Africa 1. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Survivors of a deadly airstrike on a migrant detention centre in Tripoli in July have told the BBC they feel abandoned by the United Nations and are desperate to escape Libya. 53 migrants and refugees were killed in the airstrike, which was blamed on rebel forces trying to get control of the capital. There was widespread international condemnation of the airstrike, which the United Nations said may have been a war crime. The World Health Organization says at least 1,000 people have been killed, including around 100 civilians and 120,000 displaced. Survivors of the airstrike remain in trapped in a city under attack where they have been speaking exclusively to the BBC's international correspondent Ola Guerin. We travelled to the southern edge of Tripoli, now a suburban battlefield. This is the heart of Libya's latest conflict, but foreign players are also involved in what is increasingly another proxy war in the Middle East. From this uh, direction, maybe, maybe 600 uh, meters from uh, uh, this point is a fire line. The commander, Salem bin Ismail, showed us the front line that many have died to protect. He's a veteran of the revolution of 2011 and said he's still fighting to defend democracy. I hope this is the last of the wars. We need ballot boxes and elections. We fought against Gaddafi to get rid of military control. The Libyan people want democracy. Circumstances have made us fight again. He and his men are fighting to defend Tripoli on behalf of the UN-recognised government. It has the support of Turkey and Qatar. They're holding off forces led by a rebel commander, General Khalifa Haftar. He's backed by Egypt, the UAE, France and Russia. Well, the fighting has been grinding on here since April, much of it unseen. But there is active firing taking place today. And what happens on this front line has implications far beyond Tripoli. The fear is that if this conflict continues, it could push Libya into all-out civil war. With the government focused on defending the capital, there's a moment of opportunity for groups including the Islamic State or Daesh, according to the Interior Minister Fatih Bashaga. This is very good chance for Al-Qaeda, for Boko Haram, for Daesh, for organised crime now in Libya. It is very good environment. That report by the BBC's international correspondent Ola Guerin. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, the president of the Umbrella for Democratic Change in Botswana, Duma Bok, was optimistic that his party has performed well in Wednesday's elections. Three protesters have been killed and several others wounded after demonstrations against Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed turned violent. And Democratic Party lawmakers in the U.S. have accused their Republican rivals of compromising national security after more than 20 of them stormed the impeachment in Inquiry into President Donald Trump. Those are the stories making headlines. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. The Democratic Republic of Congo's government has offered to help bury 30 people who died in a horrific bus accident in Mbanzungungu, east of the capital, Kinshasa. The bus was carrying more than 50 passengers and flammable products. Jano Obamweza reports from Kinshasa. The decision of the government to take full care of the bus accident victims' funerals was announced on Tuesday here in Kinshasa after this country's cabinet meeting. The meeting led by Prime Minister Sylvester Ilunga, Ilungamba, aimed to evaluate the situation following the bus accident that left 31 people dead and 18 others injured while traveling from the Congo Central Province to Kinshasa. And indeed, the government has announced that the process is underway to take the corpse from the Mbazangungu mortuary where they are kept and bring them to be buried here in Kinshasa where the coffins and all the necessary are being prepared. The full cost of the funerals and other mourning-related expenses will be taken care of by this country's government, which is busy preparing the burial ceremony with some of the families that are being identified. Steve Mbikai Mabuluki is the Democratic Republic of Congo's Minister of Humanitarian Affairs. We are busy preparing places to bury the bodies. We'll bring them as soon as possible, and it's the government taking care of the funerals. Besides the 31 people who have been killed in the accident, 18 other people have been injured, and the government is taking care of them as well. The injured people were being treated in Mbanzangungu Hospital after the accident that happened on Sunday in that city of the Democratic Republic of Congo's western province of Congo Central. 
Central, the country's government deployed ambulances to Mbasankuku in order to evacuate the injured people and rush them for proper treatment in emergency here in the DRC capital city, Kinshasa. It's indeed the government which is taking care of them and any other expenses related to their medical treatment according to this country's Minister of Humanitarian Affairs, Steve Mbikai. The Prime Minister sent me at the accident site to see what happened and assist the injured people. I brought them here in Kinshasa where they are now being treated at the Ngaliema clinics under the government full care. The DRC Association of Trucks Drivers has applauded the government decision to take care of the funerals and the injured medical treatment also, the trucks drivers are worried about numerous accidents happening on that main road. The Trucks Drivers Association believes most of accidents are due to negligence and fatigue since the traffic rules are not really respected here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. According to the association president, Andre Chikoji, it's not normal to mix passengers and flammable products or any other dangerous stuff in the same vehicle. Un bus qui est censé faire le transport des passagers prend plus d'une cinquantaine de personnes avec des... A bus is supposed to transport passengers mixes more than 50 people with flammable products such as fuel. You can't mix passengers and dangerous products that can take fire any time. It's the transport administration mistaken. We now want everything under control. And indeed, most of accidents happening on that main road are always attributed to negligence of traffic rules such as high speed, overloading and more. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa 1. On Twitter, at Channel Africa 1. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. A fearless, courageous and completely dedicated woman who supported freedom in South Africa. That's how a close friend and colleague described anti-apartheid and social justice activist Jennifer Davis, who died in the United States last week. Regarded as a leader of the anti-apartheid movement in the U.S., Davis was honored with the Order of the Companions of Oartambo in Bronze in 2009 for her contribution to the anti-apartheid struggle, the field of education and commitment to human rights. Sherwood Price Peace reports. The pressure on South Africa must be maintained until they begin to really deliver change. That you don't Jennifer Davis has been described as a relentless fighter against injustice throughout her life, a student activist through the 50s and 60s, and the subsequent pressure that forced her into exile in the United States in 1966, where she dedicated her life to the struggle. A friend and colleague, Donna Katzen, who's the executive director of Shared Interest, says she worked with Davis right up until her passing on October 15th. I first knew her as an activist. Uh, she was heading the American Committee on Africa, the oldest anti-apartheid organization in the United States, which she ran for close to 20 years and worked at before. 
but she was fearless. Um, she would help design campaigns and mobilize a staff with very little pay and very little time and a massive movement of volunteers and people who were in the streets on these campaigns over time. The American Committee on Africa, which Davis led as executive director from 1981 until 2000, afforded Davis a platform through which to strengthen ties with liberation organizations on the continent while galvanizing support here against the apartheid regime through speaking engagements from college campuses to Congress, as Katzen explains. To get the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act passed in, in 1985, before that, which synchronized with the movements in the streets in South Africa and the Defiance Campaign. At the same time, she was building a movement here that paralleled the protest movements in South Africa. And she and other organizations that she helped to bring together, so I was working with the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility. There was TransAfrica, there were Washington Office on Africa, many activist organizations that brought people out from congregations, from campuses, from communities themselves that came out to oppose apartheid. She was part of the organizing committee that would plan the first visit to the United States by former President Nelson Mandela, soon after his release from prison in 1990. I was on that committee as well, and she played a wonderful role, particularly uh, not only in bringing the groups that had been that she had helped organize before and that American Committee on Africa had helped organize, but also the cultural community, um, because she had helped through ACOA bring together the album I, I, I ain't gonna play, since, gonna play in Sun City. And it was that Sun City album that brought out musical luminaries to capture people's imagination and attention. And also the slogan that came out of that was keep the pressure on. And we did. This was Davis volunteering at a Mandela Day cleanup in Central Park in 2011. It's enormously important for us to remember what his contribution to South Africa and to the world was. He, he was a freedom fighter, and by that I really mean he meant to change society. The courage, the determination to keep on working, the ability to look at people and recognize that they can change and they may change, but never to move off your fundamental principles. He was an extraordinarily principled man. A woman who recognized that even with democracy in 1994, that economic justice was still a long way off for the majority of South Africans. People need to remember that she was courageous, that she was humble, that she was tremendously visionary, and not only visionary in the big sense of being able to say apartheid was a system of white power and black poverty. That struggle continues, and she was someone who planted in us the seed to carry it forward, to understand that even though we may not live to see total victory, that we will continue and pass it on. Davis, who was honored with the National Order in 2009 for her diligent service to South Africa, is survived by her partner, two children, and five grandchildren. 
Donations in her name can be made to the Shared Interest Jennifer Davis Fund for the Future, which mobilizes resources for South Africa's economically disenfranchised communities, or to the African Activist Archive. Jennifer Davis was 85. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York. Welcome to Change Your Game here on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. My name is Asanda Peta. What uh, GDF Forum is about and what an opportunity it provides specifically for the audience of Change Your Game. At Change Your Game, we believe entrepreneurs are the key drivers of tomorrow's African innovations and essential to creating a thriving African economy. More support, just like invest more in young creatives and entrepreneurship, but actually do it, don't just talk about it, actually do it, you know, because there are a lot of creative minds, there are a lot of intelligent human beings in our country, so I think they should invest more in that and take it seriously, because it's a real thing. Catch us every Friday at 900 hours Central African time with Channel Africa, the African Perspective. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoko. Good morning. You're listening to Channel Africa. South African Airways has announced that the majority of its aircraft that were affected by non-compliance have now been certified as compliant and have resumed operations. Earlier this week, some SAA, ComAir and British Airways flights were grounded due to irregular findings uncovered during a recent audit of the South African Airways Technical. The South African Civil Aviation Authority directed ComAir, SAA and Mango to conduct a verification exercise on their fleet of aircraft to ensure that some of the identified irregularities are not prevalent in the entire fleet. SAA spokesperson Tladi Tladi. A total of 25 aircraft had been affected by this compliance revalidation process and 80% of those aircraft have been released back into service. The remaining aircraft are receiving attention and will turn back to service soon. Whilst the operational impact of this recall was minimal in nature and manifested itself in the form of flight delays only, we still regret the inconvenience and the anxiety this may have caused to our passengers for which we apologize. Authority is cracking the whip on officers suspected of prejudicing the taxmen millions of US dollars in potential revenue. This in the wake of reports of an elaborate illegal vehicle importation scandal that has rocked the entity. This comes following reports that a syndicate comprising the tax authorities, employees and car dealers had manipulated tax clearance systems to fraudulently import 200 top-of-the-range vehicles. The vehicles importation scam orchestrated by the syndicate was fueled through the manipulation of the tax authorities' manual customs clearance systems. 
Namibia's Mines and Energy Ministry says that the country is still faced with the challenge of corruption. Despite achieving favorable rankings in regional and international indices, however, according to Transparency International's Corruption Perspe- uh, Perception Index, the Mo Ibrahim Index of African Governance and the Afrobarometer Survey, Namibia has moved places, showing the country is less eroded by corruption. Kenya is reportedly considering listing a sovereign green bond at the Nairobi Securities Exchange as there is currently a huge appetite among both foreign and local investors for climate-sensitive debt instruments. The Securities Exchange says Kenya has already enacted legal reforms to offer tax incentives on green bonds. Kenya's Central Bank Governor, Patrick Njoroye, has been named the Central Bank Governor of the Year for Sub-Saharan Africa in the 2019 Global Markets Award. This is the second time Njoroye is winning the award, with the first coming in 2016, reinforcing his high standing among central bank governors in Africa. The annual award by world-leading financial journal Global Markets was presented to Njoroye during a World Bank International Monetary Fund meeting in Washington, D.C. The U.S. dollar is trading at 360.77 Nigerian Naira, 10.72 Botswana Pula, 102.78 Kenyan Shilling, and 13.20 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.6 Brazilian roll, 63.83 Russian ruble, 70.58 Indian rupee, 7.7 Chinese yuan, and 14.63 to the South African rand, 77 pence to the British pound, 89 cents to the euro, gold $1,492, platinum $917 pounds, brand crude oil $60.85 a barrel. I'm Tabiso Lahoko. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In this hour, in our sports update, we begin with football news. South African Football Association, SAFA, is working tirelessly to make sure that the under-23 men's team is represented by quality players in the Africa Cup of Nations, AFCON, in Egypt next month. The tournament in Egypt will serve as the qualifiers for the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games. Eight teams have qualified for the tournament in Egypt, and only the top three will book themselves a ticket to Japan next year. The South African under-23 side is pitted against Nigeria, Ivory Coast and Zambia in Group B, while Group A is made up of Egypt, Mali, Cameroon and Ghana. This under-23 event does not fall within the FIFA calendar and most clubs are not keen on releasing their players. SAFA President Denis Jordan is optimistic that they will find a solution with Premier Soccer League clubs regarding the release of players. On to rugby news, England know that if they are to beat New Zealand, the world's number one side and winners of the last two Rugby World Cups in the semi-finals on Saturday, they will have to play almost perfect rugby, meaning they must be error-free and disciplined. 
So far in this tournament, England have maintained fairly good discipline and have kept errors to a minimum on the way to four wins from four, but the All Blacks represent a totally different proposition. Here's England's scrum half, Ben Youngs. Yeah, I've, I've had a fair few opportunities against New Zealand, I suppose. The most relevant one is the most recent one in the autumn. Um, and just uh, felt probably like we were in control a little bit in that first 25, 30 minutes and and how they, they kept coming back and, you know, eventually um, went in at half-time, I think 15-10 and they got themselves back in the game and winning it. So um, just the importance of um, how sort of error-free you have to be and you saw that again at the weekend with Ireland, uh, a couple of Ireland's mistakes and um, they're down the other end scoring off the back of it. So put a big emphasis on our discipline throughout pre-season. Um, you know, if boys did things in training, they were sent to the corner of the... Uh, corner of the pitch to, to get a bit of a flogging and stuff so uh, yeah we, we put a big emphasis on discipline because it's probably something previously that uh, we haven't always um, been terrific at but uh, certainly uh, in this tournament we've been very very good and very pleased with, with how we've been able to, to make sure that we stay disciplined and you know the weekend is, is going to be absolutely vital for that. These sentiments were echoed by flanker pairing Sam Underhill and Tom Curry, who have impressed so far at the tournament, with the latter winning man of the match in the quarterfinal win over Australia. Not only have the pair dominated at the breakdown on the field, they have also formed a special bond of it, being given the moniker Kamikaze Kids by head coach Eddie Jones. They're obviously a very dangerous attacking side. They obviously like to play rugby in, in your half, so in terms of um, you know, purely territorial um, side of things. You you want to you want to keep them out of there. So so um, discipline and cheap penalties have certainly been an easy in for for them and one that you don't really want to give them. Um, you see the benefits of that free flowing, uh, free flowing game and attack and the ability to slow ball slow ball down at the breakdown, uh, especially defensively, uh, is massive. Um, especially on the international stage, um, momentum's huge. Um, and to be able to stop that or slow, uh, stop that or speed it up it, it is massive. Um, so you're noticing that in the style of the breakdowns, um, how people are attacking, it's probably a bit more uh, unstructured. In cricket news, Ifram Karim and 19-year-old debutant Aman Gandhi propelled Kenya's chase with a 110-run opening stand at the ICC Academy Oval 2, setting the platform for a seven-wicket win over Singapore to keep Group A wide open. Karim was named man of the match for his chanceless unbeaten 71. But Lucas Oluwaj was an unsung hero on the day. The result moves Kenya level on points with Singapore. But ahead of them in fourth place on the net run rate, Briar Breaker, with two matches left to go in Group A. And finally, with tennis news, it's Roger Federer's crushed Radu Albot 6-love and 6-3 last night to win his 22nd match in a row at the Swiss Indoors and earn a quarterfinal place at his home event for the 17th time. The nine-time champion was ruthless in a 22-minute opening set, finishing the entire job in 63 minutes in front of 9,000 fans. He will face the winner from Stanislas Vavrinka and Francis Tiafo, who both earned straight set wins earlier in the day. Federer's Swiss compatriot Vavrinka fired 10 aces and 10 winners to overwhelm fellow veteran Pablo Cuevas, 6-3, 6-4, to make it into the second round, keeping alive his outside chances of making the ATP finals. Fedra, who is playing in Basel for the 19th time, won his first set to love at the tournament since 2006. 
That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Botswana awaits presidential election results and South African opposition party leader Musi Maimani resigns. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumusura Magadza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Wanda Baloi with a song titled Nomi Toka. Beyond, she will never be 